What I wish to share with you this morning is the endurance and encouragement of God as seen in this historical event that happened 3,000 plus years ago um, at a time of real darkness and wickedness, a time that is recorded as in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But more than warning us against the ways of the wicked, those will become quite obvious in our text. This event reminds us of God's work behind the scenes so that amid wickedness and unbelief, there is always hope in the unchanging God and his amazing grace. And so that's my ambition this morning to communicate to you as we look at the kindness and the severity of God in this text. So, 1 Samuel, um, let's see if I can. So we start off with worthless men because that's the first word in our text about these guys. Verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. These worthless men. Worthless men. The word worthless literally means sons of Belial or sons of the devil. And they were priests. And rather than dispensing of their evil deeds themselves, they sent their servant with a, I have a four-pronged fork. And he would come up and he would thrust the fork into the pot, which was the meat that was from the animal that was slaughtered as a sacrifice to God, as God had prescribed. And whatever came out, they would take. They stole from the sacrifice to the Lord. And not only that, it's described here, even though we don't know much about the sacrificial system, we haven't studied Leviticus And that isn't fresh in our mind, is it? But the description here is obvious of the wrong that is being done, isn't it? They thrust their fork in the pot, took whatever they came out in their greed. But then, as the people would come to worship, and God required that the fat, the fat was to be burned, as a sacrifice to God, 
They would say, no, I want the meat raw before the fat is burned off, before it's boiled. They showed contempt to the Lord. God had made a covenant with the descendants of Levi and his plan for the priests of Israel was, is described in Malachi 2. He says, my covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's not what these men were, were they? They were sons of the devil described in our passage. Worthless men. Though the law God had given prescribed gracious provision for the priests from the people's offerings to support them in their full-time, lifelong service. As prescribed in Leviticus, they were given the breast and the right thigh as meat for themselves out of the offerings of the people. Except upon the day of atonement when the lamb or the bull was slain outside the camp and the blood taken while the entire animal was offered as a sacrifice to God and the blood was given to the priest to be sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies once a year. But we are introduced to these men, worthless men, who did not know the Lord. Immediately the next sentence describes these men, these priests, who did not know the Lord. Isn't it striking too that this happened to all of Israel. They didn't have another church to go to. The tabernacle was in Shiloh, and God required every family to travel to the tabernacle to sacrifice to the Lord. And what did they incur once they arrived? They, they dealt with these wicked men who did not know the Lord. But we know this, don't we? We know that in religious work, there are many who do not know the Lord. They didn't know about him or care about him, nor gave him any regard. They were in his service, but they had no relationship with him at all. They were like Pharaoh in Exodus 5 when Moses came to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord. Pharaoh's expression was not one of ignorance, but one of defiance. And so it was with these men. They defied the living God. They abused their power. Here they were men of influence, men who were to instruct the people on how to live righteously. They were participants in the worship to God. But they abused their power. <laughs> they grabbed food. They stole food. 
They stole from the Lord. And then when the worshiper would beseech them, please, let us do this the right way. Let us burn the fat to the Lord. It's His. It's to be burnt to Him in worship. They would say, no. The priests want it raw. They wanted more. But as we think about this, what is the distinguishing factor here? But that they did not know the Lord. They did not know His grace. A quote that came out in 1970 on the first Earth Day trying to communicate that we are all guilty of destroying the planet was that we, are the, we have encountered the enemy and it is us. Well, so it was here. This, they, they, this was not an outside influence of evil and wickedness, was it? It was in the very worship in the tabernacle. All these terrible things that are clear, even to us who are relatively unfamiliar with the sacrificial laws, these things are horrible. Horrible to think about how these people were abused and how their worship was misguided for the fattening of the priests. We see these outward behaviors as the issue, don't we? But they're merely a manifestation of the real heart issue. The real heart issue was their need for God's grace and their rejection of it their hardness of heart. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's easy to point the fingers at these guys, isn't it? And to go, yeah, we know their problem. It's obvious. It's, they're sinners. They're wicked. But let's not remember who we were. Right? Before we placed our trust in our Savior, we were wicked. If it were not for God opening our ears, giving life to our heart, we would live that way today, in this place. We would be money grabbers. We would be preaching the American gospel. Come and be healed, even if your baby dies. We'll pray for its resurrection. What foolishness. Why? To abuse people, to take their money, to build their own kingdom. We must recognize as we are shown these men that we are born into this world as worthless people. People who are sons of the devil. People who did not know God. Oh, we might not have looked so bad as these guys, right? Right? 
we might have been able to dress up the corpse a little bit, put on some makeup, put on a nice suit. But we would still be dead, just like the mortician does to a dead body. Yet, God, in his kindness, he offers the invitation to come. Share in Christ. Hear his voice. Receive life. Repent and turn from your life of destructive, death-bringing sin. Receive salvation in Christ alone, who took God's wrath for your sin and rose again in victory over the power of sin and death. And he will keep you and give you that confidence that will keep you to the end as he is on his throne and has sent his spirit to fill or control you. Hophni and Phineas had contempt of a holy God. Let's look at this verse, verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. God had laid down a liturgical and sacrificial pattern of provision for his priests and the people to deal with sin. God had prescribed it. These were not suggestions to be interpreted and redefined. They were pictures to be perfectly fulfilled in the Son of God the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect fulfillment and payment for our sin. Their sin indeed was great because they had no regard for it. They mocked it. They mocked a holy God. Oops, I went, I did something wrong. But these were totally rejected by the priest. And everyone had to endure their sin. What about this spiritually abused nation? Why would God allow this? Well, one answer is found in the God Almighty is passing before Moses. Look at what he says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God has an enduring patience with men. He's long-suffering. He has an endurance far beyond ours, doesn't he? So when we see or we are part of the bad leadership, sinful guidance, we need to remember that. 
We need to remember where we came from, who we once were, how we were sinners, and we're saved by God's grace, and He is patient with them, as He was patient with us, that we might hear the good news, that we might respond to it by His Spirit. 1 Peter 1 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when you go through various trials, you suffer, and yet you still Praise God in faith. He is growing your faith. Because your faith is in Him, not the powers that be. Not in those abusive structures that you're dealing with. So God is growing you. He has a purpose to grow you. And then there's an identification with Christ. As this these verses say in Hebrews 13. It is a fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So God uses even the terrible things in our lives, the suffering, the wickedness of others, to draw our focus on Him, that we might praise and glorify Him above all. And when we do that in the midst of suffering, it is a sweet aroma to Him. It is a sweetness to our God that we would praise Him in the difficulties. (laughs) Just a few verses before our text, Hannah was singing, was praying to God. And in verse 10, she says this, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. She's anticipating the day of the coming of the Savior. And she is presently under the abuse of these priests. Isn't that something? So here's here's a person in the context that we're looking at. She's praising to God and she's looking to God for His judgment and His salvation. So that is another thing that we need to keep in mind when when we see disgraceful leadership, when we see horrible situations that God will judge. He will. Not on our timetable, because He is patient. But He is just. He will judge, and He will save. And she was looking forward to the salvation coming in Christ. Which leads us to our second point, the kindness of God. And this is just a glimpse, and it's so special. 
Look at verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. The book of 1 Samuel starts off with Hannah and Elkanah and Penina. And Penina was Elkanah's second wife because Hannah didn't bear him any children. He married and she had many children. But that became a real affliction for Hannah because Penina mocked and abused Hannah because she had no children. And she, they would go to the tabernacle once a year. And Elkanah would give Hannah, because he loved her, he would give her a double portion to sacrifice before the Lord. Hannah would weep outside the grounds of the tabernacle. And she would pray. And one day Eli saw her and he confronted her. He said, don't be drunk, woman. Don't come to the house of God being drunk. And she said, oh no, I haven't drank. I have had no strong drink. I am praying to my God to provide a son for me. I am not a worthless woman. Well, Eli was kind of put in a pickle, wasn't he? He misjudged her totally. But I think God used that. Because Eli then blessed her. And she heard the pronouncement of God through this judge of Israel, Eli, to go and God would answer her prayer. When she was praying, she made a promise to God that her son would be given to serve the Lord all the days of his life. And so after he was born, he was born, just as God said, to a barren woman, a woman, she was helpless. She could not help herself. God did this. God answered her prayer, gave her a son. She kept him at home. She wouldn't travel to the tabernacle yearly until he was weaned. And then she prepared to take him, and she left him at the tabernacle. Now, we think about that for a minute. Who was at the tabernacle? These wicked, worthless priests. Wouldn't he have been better at home? Probably. (laughs) And yet God kept this little boy, and he grew up by God's grace. He was undefiled by these wicked priests. And that's what we're reading here in our text this morning. 
that every year his mother would come and she'd bring him new clothes because, of course, he was a growing boy. We see here the kindness of God, don't we? God in this dark, dark setting that's almost hopeless. Uh, the spiritual condition of Israel being experienced in the tabernacle at Shiloh. And God has a little boy. A little boy that he has chosen from a family he chose to show his grace. And this little boy is growing. And Eli blesses this family and Hannah's barrenness is no more. God blesses them with an abundant family. God had chosen this barren woman in her state of helplessness. God chose her son as she bore a son and named him Samuel to serve him in this place. Isn't this something? A boy. A boy with a linen ephod. A little boy shining in the darkness. Insignificant as it seems in this foreboding darkness of evil men. Never underestimate children in the purposes of God and the work among children. And through children is significant work. God chose this family to receive His grace. To be clear, they were undeserving. And that's what grace is, isn't it? Grace is undeserved, unmerited, and that's what we have to remind ourselves of. Grace is God's gift, God's work. And we come to the severity of God. First Peter says, For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Not all who call themselves Christians are Christians. We know that, right? We need to be aware of that. We need to be on guard. I... Uh, remember working with an individual who was, we, I was trying to convince him that he was in, living in sin, that what he was doing was going to bring destruction to him. And his re, reply, his comment was, well, why hasn't God killed me? Why, why am I not dead? I must be doing something right. We hear that often, don't we? Whoa, that was a close call, but I must be doing something right. Is that, is that what grace is? No. Because I'm commenting, I must be gaining God's favor somehow, right? 
You can't, we can't gain God's favor except through Jesus Christ. There's no fear of God there, is there? It's just, oh, I can, I can merit my way. God will take notice of me, what I've done. Eli was very old, our text starts off with in verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. This suggests compromise. (laughs) He had been living this way for a long time. And he had been getting fat over his, his son's thievery of the sacrifices. He had built habits and precedents. Let's look at what the text says. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. More evil is revealed of just how deep the darkness was. Under the guise of religion, wholesale greed and gross immorality has run like a dark, dark line. Theft, gluttony, sexual immorality reveal the expression of the human heart from thoughts to actions to patterns. Eli gives them a warning too little, too late. He had the power and the responsibility to remove them. But he did not have the will. He allowed his natural human affection to trump over the call of God. It would have been really hard. Imagine that, having to remove his sons from the priestly office. Though he should have done it. False love will refuse to do the hard thing. And we all know it as parents. (laughs) The apple of our eye is our children. Is it not? (laughs) I once had my pastor came to me and he said, Dan, do you realize that you're asking your, your children to do whatever you want them to do? I said, yeah. I know that. I, I've been doing it on purpose. I want to teach them manners. He said, well, that's not teaching them manners. And it's not teaching them that they should obey. It's teaching them that they can choose to obey. They can answer your question yes or no. <laughs> that didn't go over real well with me. <laughs> it was like touching the apple of my eye. I had a plan. I had a purpose. An objective, right? But I had to step back and say, you know, you're right. You're right. I, as a parent, ought to be telling my children what to do. 
I have that right and that responsibility because if they don't learn to obey me, who they can see, how will they obey God whom they cannot see? But that was a very difficult time in my life. Getting over that hurdle of my love for my children. They were my brood. You all know that. You all have experienced that. But we have to guard against an ungodly love that will not receive correction, that will not do the right thing even though we know it to be the right thing. And we see here God's judgment coming. For it was the will of God to put them to death. God's judgment was sure, and it was coming. You see, God's judgment is not just for the future, nor is it just seen in the judgment of God upon Jesus on the cross. It is also in giving people over to their desires that lead them to destruction and death. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24 to 32, over and over it says God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to dishonorable passions, to a debased mind. God's judgment is seen in His allowing people to reap the deadly consequences of the rebellion to him and his ways. How do people's hearts get hard? By rejecting God and choosing the immediate pleasures of their sin over having faith in the goodness of God and his mercy and grace given to his chosen and his future promises that will be eternal, everlasting. This starts by ingratitude, presuming upon God's grace, justifying sin, and rejecting God's salvation through Christ alone. Hophni and Phinehas would not listen to their father, or for that matter, the law of God. Their defiance was an expression of their hardening of their hearts, but also... God was hardening their heart. He was preparing them for his judgment. They were going to stand before him. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Paul says in an encouraging promise. But for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. God promises judgment to all who reject him, to all who harden their hearts. We come to God's faithfulness. Look at verse 26. Right in the middle of this passage, 
Now, the young man Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Now, the boy. This reminds us of a greater boy, doesn't it? Who was born, who grew in favor with God and men. The little boy, Jesus. We're told those same words about him. Isn't that something? God was preparing this little boy, Samuel, to grow, to become a judge of Israel. He would anoint two kings in Israel. The second being David, who God would promise would have an everlasting reigning king in our Lord Jesus Christ, a descendant of David. God was establishing his kingdom, and this little boy was God's work, God's plan of redemption being unfolded. John chapter 1, verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We come to this prophecy now. And this is amazing, because in the midst of the darkness, God sends an unnamed man to proclaim his word. And his word was not often heard in this day. So look at this. And there was a man of God, and there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subjects to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be no, not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man, uh, or an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from your, my altar, shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this is that shall come upon your two sons. Hophni and Phinehas shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. The word of the Lord came to Eli and God pronounces his goodness. 
Don't you see? I chose you from the, when you were enslaved in Egypt. I gave you this task to perform throughout all your generations. And you have mocked me. You have despised me. Therefore, I will cut you off. And there will be one of your family left. And he will weep his eyes out. In uh, the reign of Solomon, as Solomon was establishing his throne, he, the priest, Abiathar, had aligned himself with Solomon's brother, Adonijah. And everyone thought Abiathar ought to be put to death because of his alignment against Solomon. Solomon banished him instead. Direct fulfillment of this prophecy. In fact, in, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27, it actually says this is the fulfillment of the prophecy made to Eli. Here they went from a family that was getting fat on the sacrifices of the Lord to now he would become a beggar of bread. Just as Hannah had prayed in chapter 2, verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. And I will raise up for myself, chapter 2, verse 27, a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I might eat a morsel of bread. God's judgment was sure and it was coming even though it was generations from when God said it would occur. But God in his faithfulness he is warning Eli. He is warning Hophni and Phinehas. In fact the very next chapter very famous chapter in 2 Samuel was when little boy Samuel is sleeping, right? And God says, Samuel! So he runs to Eli. And Eli said, I didn't call you, go back to bed. Samuel goes back to bed. God says, Samuel, what was the message God was communicating? We often teach our children that to listen to God, and that's a good lesson, but what was God communicating to Samuel? God was communicating a very great, heavy message to a little boy. And that message was the judgment of Eli. The judgment that was coming. God continued to warn this family. 
So what should our response be? First of all, that God is greater than all my sin. God's grace is greater. So if you are convicted of sin, go to Him. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. Follow Him. Let Him make you, change you from a dead person to alive in Him. Loving Him, loving His ways, loving His word, loving others. Don't harden your heart. Don't love your sin more than Him. Repent of your sin. Be willing to turn from it. Respond to His grace. Turn from your sin. And we have a wonderful opportunity as we are a family and we gather together and we get to know one another deeper and deeper to exhort and encourage one another in walking with Jesus. If you see me sinning, I expect you to come to me and tell me. If I see you sinning, I'm going to come to you in love with the goal to restore you to Christ. God calls us to this work in His church that we might glorify Him, honor Him. So I hope this morning that you have seen the work of God even in the darkest of times. And as we live in a very dark time, that you will see Him even... Did you... Are you aware His redemption is still not yet complete? We are anticipating the fullness and fulfillment of God's redemption in Christ Jesus. Jesus is coming back again as King. And He is going to change us where sin will no longer be in our lives. We will see Him and we will be like Him. And He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth where there is no sin. We anticipate that redemption that is coming. We have, been, we have seen and experienced His redemption in Christ Jesus. And He is on His throne today. And He is coming to reign. He is coming to rule. Are we ready? Are we prepared? Are we anticipating that? Are we looking for that? Are you giving God glory even in the hard things? May it be so. My benediction this, uh, this morning is from Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement Grant you to live in such harmony and with with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Go in peace.